Hi, I'm David Warhol, producer of Saturn Bug, and you're listening to the Sega Lounge. Welcome to the Sega Lounge, a podcast dedicated to our love for all things Sega, be it the games, the music, or the community. I'm KC. In each episode, I'll be talking to different guests and sharing their projects and their passion for Sega. Welcome back to the Sega Lounge, everyone. I hope you're well and you had a wonderful week. Last week, we had a somewhat different episode covering Sonic Colors Ultimate. If you missed that, do check it out and feel free to share your own thoughts on the game as well by tweeting at the Sega Lounge. I also wanted to give a shout out to our friends over at Sega Powered Magazine, who just got successfully funded over on Kickstarter with 441 backers pledging over 12,700 pounds. That's amazing, and I'm really excited to flick through the first issue of this brand new Sega Magazine very soon. But enough chit-chat, it's time to talk about this week's guest. And boy, oh boy, do we have a great guest for you. This week, I am very, very excited to share with you guys my conversation with video game industry legend David Warhol. Mr. Warhol was a programmer during the early Intellivision days, founded Real-Time Associates and, with RTA, created several games for Sega consoles, including Bug and its sequel, Bug 2. As you can probably tell by listening to our conversation, I was delighted to learn more about his career, his stories about a different time in the industry, and how Real-Time Associates was originally supposed to make a 3D Sonic game for the Saturn. That and much more coming up next on the Sega Lounge. Hello, Mr. David Warhol. Welcome to the Sega Lounge. How are you? Oh, uh, fantastic. Uh, thanks for having me. I always enjoy, uh, enjoy, uh, enjoy hearing people who have interest in this era of gaming. Uh, it's, it's a pleasure. Very, a very big honor to have you on the show. Um, I... It, just to start us off with with a, a cool, interesting fact. So I was talking to uh, a listener the other day, uh, and we were talking about our love for a specific game that you worked on, uh, Bug Two. Oh. And and I, I thought to myself, I I need to get the people behind Bug on on the show. I don't know why I never did that. So mm. that's what got me thinking. I need to get in touch with with David and, and try to get him on the show. Um, but in fact, your career is much more uh, interesting than just just Bug, which is a great game. But we'll we'll get to that, I'm sure. Hmm. Would you like to tell us a little bit about your background as just like a gamer, um, and and what got you into into video games? Not as a developer or a producer, but as a, a you know a player or even interested in that world. Oh sure, yeah, absolutely. My uh, my history goes way back. I mean, I'm a first generation guy, so I was uh, kind of exploring video games before video games even existed. I want to say I was a big pinball player as a kid. 
And I remember going into an arcade once and seeing the game that's computer space and being blown away by that and saying, wow, this is a pinball machine, but it's a TV set and would go specifically to play that. And then, of course, as more and more games came out, uh, I was attracted to the interactive nature of, of the early arcade games. Um, and um, uh, at that time, my high school had a connection to the school district's computer with a really old 300 baud teletype kind of thing. And in high school, I was programming games, but the only interface was through a text keyboard. Um, so I'd done a couple of uh, kind of uh, computer games, but that ran on a terminal. Um, mm -hmm. And by the time I got into college, there were more arcade machines out. We had them in the uh, student union, was playing them a lot. And remember one day actually ditching a class to go to an arcade to play games, not realizing that that actually was more important to my career than <laughs> that, whatever the class was I was ditching, I guess. Um, um, and um, by the time what I was... Sorry to interrupt. Were you uh, taking anything related to computers or uh, in, in college? Or uh, No, I, I went to uh, Pomona College. It's a liberal arts college. And at the time, they didn't have a computer program at all. Again, they had access to a campus computer that we could, again, use uh, through uh, terminals. Um, but um, I, I uh, never took any formal programming classes. Self-taught, I... Um, I um, use the Apple computer, just programming that in assembly language for like a psych professor wanted to do some uh, experiments and I was uh, coding for that. Uh, but uh, it wasn't until I went to Mattel Electronics that I really started coding games completely in assembly language. From the, uh, Before that, it was either Fortran or basic, whatever we could use in our online computers. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't, so you really, Ditching the class was really more important to your <laughs> career than because yeah. you weren't learning anything uh, related to what you ended up doing. Well, yeah, <laughs> to what I ended up doing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay. So that, that was the first step into this world of what we now know as video games, right? Um, mm -hmm. When did you realize that was going to be your, your career, your what you wanted uh, well, to do? Uh, yeah, um, after I graduated from my uh, college, I graduated with a degree in music, which I feel had some influence on my uh, career, uh, not just doing uh, sound effects and, and uh, music for early games, but that level of kind of creative structural analysis of this is a, you know, either this is a symphony or this is a piece of art. What's the structure? What's the form? How's it developed? I feel that some of those themes carried through to my, um, my uh, uh, game design and, and game development career. But um, I was working for the college uh, for a year after I graduated. And at that time, we received notice from Mattel Electronics, famously Don Daglow, uh, who also went to my college. Um, uh, he had sent a, a job opening to the, to the school, and it landed on my desk in the computer department, at the computer services department. And I was supposed to post it for the seniors, and I was like, what? Post this? No, I'm going to apply for this. <laughs> I, I did actually post it, but I also applied and and got the job there. So I, um, it wasn't until you know graduating that the opportunity to get into computer games opened itself up, and I didn't know how to develop them, but I told myself, well, if if anybody can, I can figure it out. They can tell me how to do it, and and um, I'm game. Okay. So what was your? Do you remember even your first project there? Oh gosh. Um, so when we started at Mattel, it was kind of a cube farm like you see in the movie Tron, right? Just, uh, you know, 60 or 70 <laughs> cubes all spread out. 
Um, they literally gave me a manual for how to use the Intellivision and access to a programming station and said, spend a week or two uh, teaching yourself how to do this. So it wasn't a training program or anything like that, but they did have a sample, um, a sample code base that you could start um, developing. And the way I taught myself how to program, uh, well, for the Intellivision, but also for games, I developed an original game concept I've been thinking about that was based on Stratego, which I played a lot as a kid. Um, and this came to be known as Mindstrike. And what I did over those two or three weeks was to get a prototype board up, get some pieces moving. And then at the end of my training period, I wrote up a memo that said, hey, I'd like to propose that I complete this game. Um, and uh, people took a look at it and went upstairs and they said, yeah, let's, let's run with it. So my first game was uh, of my own device, born out of a training project. I think I still have in one of my boxes, I still have that memo of me, uh, of me proposing to do that game. So it was that easy to, to get ideas across at the time, right? So just yeah. write up a memo and people were open to new ideas. It's a small department and um, gosh, uh, you know, there wasn't a lot of precedent. Um, they were doing a lot of sports games, but they had all those handled. And then they were doing arcade ripoffs. You know, they would look at something like Centipede or um, Tempest and say, oh, well, we got to do a game like this. Or Astro Smash literally is Asteroids. Um, and um, I guess either they didn't have a project to attach me to or, well, that seems different enough. Uh, perhaps we should uh, try that. They had... Uh, Mattel had different, like the strategy network and the sports network and you know, the arcade network. And I think they figured, oh, we can put this over in the strategy network or what have you. Because they were, they were doing some board games, but this one was uh, unique in that it was a real-time board game where mm -hmm. um, you, you, the pieces moved at the same time. Like imagine playing chess, but you didn't have to take turns kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. Okay. So that, that's great. That's great. And, and it's brilliant that your first... Uh, you know, like your training project became your first real project. That's, yeah. that's amazing. <laughs> yeah, and so you, and interesting enough, uh, intriguingly enough, your training was by yourself, right? So mostly by yourself. So you'll you're still a self-taught, uh, <laughs> as you were before, programmer developer. <laughs> at well, this at, time, at that time, there were no formal ways to learn how to develop games. And I remember even yeah. 10 years later, um, I was um, I was uh, at dinner with Rich Hilleman, uh, Electronic Arts, and uh, EA had been growing and all this. And it was right mm -hmm. at the time when Hollywood was trying to do games and games were trying to do Hollywood. And his point at that time was, you know, Dave, um, we can do Hollywood better than Hollywood can do games. Why? Because I can walk into a bookstore and I can see a hundred books on how to make games and they can't walk into a bookstore and see one book on how to make video games. Mm -hmm. Oh, oh uh, yeah. So yeah. make movie, how to make movies. Make movies yes. Yeah. And they yeah. can. Yeah. Exactly. That. Yeah. I got yeah. it. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Yeah. So it was fairly new, right? It, it is still fairly new when we compare it to other art forms, even though yeah. we, we look at uh, the, you know, the advancements and the, the innovation that we got over the, the past few decades, but it's still a fairly new medium. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah. If, given the life of other creative medium and, um, and especially in the indie game um, scene, right. Where, where really it's a small project that can push some boundaries or express themselves creatively in that way. 
Yeah, yeah. Excellent. Very good. That's very, very interesting. So at, at some point, uh, you decided to create Real-Time Associates, right? So you were... Yeah, that was, that was many years later. Um, mm -hmm. I worked at Mattel for a year and a half. The electronics division uh, uh, shut down in the video game bust of, I want to say, 84. Um, everybody's laid off. Interestingly enough, though, computer games were starting to take off at that time. And many of uh, some of the management uh, uh, continued their career in in computer games. Now, also, while I was programming um, in television games, I was an avid computer game player as well. Uh, so, so uh, yeah, I'd play arcade games and, and some console games, but really I was looking at like the Infocom adventures and stuff like that, having a lot of fun with those. So as uh, when the video game market crashed, uh, I started then working in music and sounds for computer games, which was just taking off. That was Commodore 64, the Amiga, uh, PCs only had one sound card to develop for, and it was, you know, no, uh, no DV DVDs or CDs or anything like that. And so then I was um, keeping uh, my hat in the ring, but instead of doing one project every six months or, you know, these computer game designers would take nine months to do a, a pretty epic game, I'd be coming in and out every one or two months to do some music and sounds. So I was able to be exposed to a vast level of architectures and uh, kind of designers. And so I really built a, a portfolio of technology at that time because I was working on the Amiga and the Commodore 64 and the Atari 400-800 and um, all, of these different, all of these different machines. So you, you mentioned um, something that I, I usually talk to people who were developing games at that time, composers, whatnot. There were a lot of limitations with the hardware at the time, right? Oh, do you holy think? Cow. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Tell me about it, right? <laughs> so, do you think um, that I? We usually get to the same conclusion every time that you know uh, limitations spark creativity. So, do you think you were more creative yourself because you had to work around those limitations as well? Um, yeah, but creative use of technology. Um, the games were extraordinarily small, right? Four kilobytes, mm. eight kilobytes. Um, and it became important to be creative with programming techniques to maximize the, um, the kind of the, the payout of the, of the game experience. So um, we, we pushed the limits of what the technology would do is where the creativity uh, really came into it. Um, and, and there's this, um, there's this, uh, a kind of a law that I've, I've coined, um, uh, it's kind of like Moore's law, right? Moore's law is every uh, six, 18 months technology doubles or halves and costs, whatever that is. And, and that's why we have so much memory. We, um, there's another ratio that I find really interesting, which is the number of hours of gameplay of a game uh, divided by the size of the game. And so if, you've, if you expect 20 hours out of a game that's only four kilobytes, that means that each byte of memory represents something like 2.8 minutes of play or whatever the math is. I don't have it in front of me. But then you, you get a 64K game that you expect to be 20 hours with. Well, gosh, the memory isn't as important. And by the time you get to a DVD size of four gigabytes that maybe you've got 80 hours of gameplay in it instead of just 20, 
Um, mm-hmm. It's still now you've got 3.5 meg per uh, minute or, or what what have you. Um, um, and and so the I like to say that the bytes were very precious back then because you had to express them in ways to entertain where instead of just throwing data at the problem or throwing graphics at the problem, um, uh, you you really needed to uh, figure out how to entertain in very little resource. Yeah, yeah, because you had to allot uh, this amount of memory to 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 this part of the game, to graphics, to music, to whatever. So you mm-hmm. you, you couldn't just <laughs> like waste yeah. all that precious memory in doing whatever. And I'd like to say that over the first maybe 10 years of my career, uh, I still use that as a mandate. Once we got CDs, it wasn't like, okay, well, now we don't have to be efficient. It was like, no, what happens if we bring efficiency to this level of storage? Imagine how much more we could put in here than our competitors or than other people by maximizing it or you know, there's still a, a certain amount of bandwidth it would take to mm-hmm. stream off the disk. Well, let's compress them in a way that we can get more off the disk at a time. Still looking at these larger resources as scarce resources. And yeah. um, I, I got to say now it's it's not as uh, relevant in, in development nowadays, but it's still a, it's still a, a point of optimization. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, now, now we get like, uh, dozens of of gigs <laughs> per game, oh, yeah. and people complain that they need to if they buy the games digitally, they need to spend some some hours or something <laughs> downloading the game, downloading patches and stuff. So we we always complain about everything. Well, I first got Half Life, I got it online, and uh, I said they call it Half Life because it's taken half my life to download the dang thing. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, yeah everyone. Always likes to complain about hmm. whatever. Yeah, we complain about what what uh, you know annoys us at the time, but that that changes. Yeah. Okay. So you uh, so you were mentioning your your career, and you've done a lot of amazing things. So uh, real time associates, why uh, and how did that happen? Yeah. Um, so uh, I was doing music and sounds again for a number of uh, for a lot a lot of EA, some Interplay, some Lucasfilm games at the time, and then I had the opportunity to. Um, there was a entrepreneur who used to work at Mattel Electronics who bought the Mattel product line, and um, uh, we we were connected, and he asked me to start uh, generating new games or updating old games. He was uh, taking all the sports games and enhancing them and calling it the super pro line of television games, whatever. Um, I started working, doing in television games again, bringing together a group of ex-Mattel programmers who were familiar with it. We built our own development stations because there weren't any at the time. And uh, that was the genesis of real-time associates was getting these these ex Mattel guys together. It was all virtual, uh, no office. Everybody's working at home, um, but they're very small teams. One lead programmer, one graphic artist, and then me, either design producer, audio guy, uh, tester. Um, so we were able to make that work. So real-time associates started that way, and then eventually we well uh, we reverse engineered the eight-bit Nintendo to to um to offer services on that and um it probably was around then that uh, i actually got an office and started bringing in people real uh, into a, a real physical studio 
So that that's interesting. So you've reversed engineered the the at the NES, right? Because yeah. yeah. at the there time, was no documentation. There was no dev kits. There was no nothing, right? So if well, you there wanted were dev to, kits, there were dev kits. If you if you were an official Nintendo developer, you could get exactly. an official Nintendo developer kit. But at this time, all the development was being done in Japan. And um, I didn't even think they were going to open it up to third-party developers. So honestly, we just sat on the tech for a couple of years until we started noticing games being developed in the United States. And like, holy cow, uh, missed that bandwagon. Um, but uh, we had built our own uh, ROM emulators for the Intellivision. So we adapted those to uh, the 6502 and the uh, Nintendo bus. And then without even realizing it, we needed to become third-party developers. We were third-party developers. <laughs> Probably at least three or four games before Nintendo goes, wait a second, these guys aren't uh, licensed developers. What's going on here? So you guys you guys uh, actually developed and released NES games or without oh, yeah, a license? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Without a license, yeah. I, I didn't know I needed one. They didn't know I didn't have one. They just got the, the games from the publisher who... Uh, who sent them in. And, you know, it, this this came to light kind of famously, notoriously, and I'm a little embarrassed to say, on one of our biggest releases, Maniac Mansion for uh, Jellico. Um, a tremendous engineering effort. Um, I think we did a, a pretty good job. Still, the, the wavy line at the bottom of the screen kind of bothers me, but I don't think the Nintendo was really designed to do that. Um, uh, but um, not knowing how to initialize their cartridge memory controller, we released a version of the game and they manufactured hundreds of thousands of units that didn't correctly initialize the controller because we were testing on dev, dev cards and and uh, stuff like that. And uh, they when they plugged the cart cartridges in, they didn't work. They, you know, it's just eight, $10 a cartridge. They blew a couple million dollars in inventory. Fortunately, it turned out that all they needed to do was wipe the RAM that was on the card, make sure the RAM was initialized, and then the whole thing worked just fine. But that's when it came out that, oh, well, I, I don't know how to program this thing. Well, didn't you look in the specs? I don't have the specs. You know? <laughs> so the Maniac Mansion was uh, released as an unlicensed uh, game for the NES? Is that true? No, it was a, well, Jalico licensed it from Lucasfilm Games. Okay. And then Real Time Associates was the developer of it. So it was published by Jalico, but we had a great collaboration with uh, Ron Gilbert, the Scum Guys. Um, mm -hmm. um, uh, we, we kind of built a Scum engine that ran on the, the Nintendo. Um, and uh, yeah, so uh, yeah, that was. Uh, so it, it was it, the, the the issue here was you you didn't have access to the the, the you know the, the original the 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 spec lists the yeah, all the, the parts documentation lists, the, the parts yeah. lists so yeah. yeah so yeah yeah okay yeah that's that's very interesting thanks for sharing that <laughs> every time there's a history of video game book I I thumb through it to say please uh, let's make sure they didn't bring this up so hey this is maybe a scoop me on this one now. <laughs> Your secret's safe with us. No, one, no, no one's listening. It's just... Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't tell anybody. No one's listening. Don't... Yeah. Okay. So, and um, at some point... So, I think, it, obviously, this is a Sega podcast, so people listening to us um, associate you with uh, with Sega, with games released on Sega platforms. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and at some point, I believe there was a, a like a very close collaboration between you guys and Sega, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, how did yeah. that come to be? How did that happen and, and start at the time? Well, I want to say, let's see, we were developing a lot for the Nintendo platforms was our predominant, um, the, the Super Nintendo and the 8-bit Nintendo. Um, and, uh, but I had a, an agent out there, uh, Paul Kohler, who was in contact with all the publishers on their needs and things like that. So he had a relationship with Sega. Um, I think as a test game, they gave us Ren and Stimpy for the Game Gear. Um, and, uh, that was one of the, I don't want to say earliest things. Well, certainly it's the first thing we did for Sega. Mm-hmm. Um, and that went well. Uh, and so then they also then tested us with Barney, the dinosaur on the Genesis and Jesse Taylor was a producer of that. And he, this is when Barney was becoming, uh, very popular with kids and very annoying to adults. So I'm sure it was really hard for him to, get that through. But his vision for the game was brilliant. He wanted to, you know, hey, if my older brother or sister has a Genesis console system, let's get something for the three-year-old that he can play as well. He or she can play as well. And I thought it was a great, uh, a great concept. And his idea of, well, because Barney is all about affirmation and all this, you don't even need to play the game. It'll just, if you let go of the controller, it'll just play itself. And, and so, so um, we did that one. And I think the rapport that we built with Jesse on how we executed his vision and, and how we worked together as a team, I think is what really solidified our relationship into Sega. Um, and um, we were talking about doing um, Bug. We had pitched Bug for as a Genesis cartridge, kind of as a wonky, a wonky Sonic. Um, <laughs> uh, but um, uh, so... So by then, I think we, we had a pretty good relationship with Sega. Um, I'm not sure of the timing of their Pico platform, uh, but we did a tremendous amount of work for them on the Pico. So they looked at us as a, a reliable and valued supplier. Um, and you, you released some, some licensed games there as well, right? So, so uh, Disney, oh, yeah. uh, even uh, there, there's a, a Tales game that you guys, Tales yeah, of the Tales, Music, you guys worked on that too. Um, Lion King. I, mean, I had some Lion King animation cells up uh, uh, here, uh, which is funny because they didn't they didn't make animation cells. But what we did was for the book, we had to make animation cells. We got licensed artists and uh, cell painters and got them approved through Disney. So uh, I don't think any actual Lion King cells exist because that was when they first started digitally painting it. Except I've got three up over here. Excellent. Um, <laughs> So, uh, so around that time, oh yeah, please mm-hmm. go ahead. No, no, no. Yeah, you you keep going. So I think no, you were yeah. saying that you you collaborated uh, with them yeah. on the Pico yeah. as well, and then yeah, there was the the Saturn came up. I, I the believe Saturn. The Saturn came out. <laughs> they were starting to develop for the Saturn, and we were selected as one of six developers, which they called the Tiger Team. And this is, uh, you know, Jesse brought us in and he might've had another developer there. And I'm not sure who the other ones were. I remember Jeff Spangenberg's company uh, was one of them. Um, And this was a year before the launch of the Saturn and they didn't even have development systems yet, Uh, but they had specs. They said, this is what it's going to look like. Uh, And they signed us up to actually do a 3D Sonic game. That's how Bug started was... 
Sega of America signed a contract with Real-Time Associates. It's the biggest one we had to date to do a Sonic game. And so we started development in good faith. And about two weeks after the contract was signed, we moved forward. Um, uh, Sega of Japan found out, what? You gave an American developer Sonic? No. <laughs> and so all of a sudden the, the rug was pulled out from under us on the Sonic game. So here we had this, the, the, this contract to do a 3D, um, 3D action game, but no lead character. And we were mm -hmm. concerned at the time. Um, oh, but uh, also, I think it was the day I signed the contract with, uh, their, with their VP and Jesse Taylor was there that he said, oh, I'm leaving the company. Um, uh, was really glad to have worked with you, but I've, I've got another opportunity somewhere else. And uh, so all of a sudden our, our connection with Jesse wasn't there, who I knew was our champion. But mm -hmm. um, in his place, Steve Apoor uh, of Sega fame uh, uh, was, was now our producer. And uh, uh, as in those weeks we were trying to figure out what to do, we sent Steve our sketches for Bug that we had done for Jesse for the Genesis. For the yeah, for the Genesis, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and so Steve then recognizing that he championed he championed this inside Sega saying, you know what, if we give them a license or a character, they're going to do an okay job. But if we let them do an original, they're just going to take off and it's going to, they're going to be on fire internally as well as instead of just filling out a bill of goods, they're going to be really committed and invested in this. So uh, Steve got them to sign off on an original character game for us, um, which ended up being bug. And, mm -hmm. and then, um, yeah, and then, and then we were off to the races. Okay. So, um, obviously people will be like, uh, so I, I, I had heard this before, but for people who hadn't, um, was bug was the, the final product bug, what you intended the Sonic 3d product to be like in terms of gameplay, not, I know aesthetically it was probably very different. Uh, it had to. You had to comply with Sega's vision of Sonic and stuff, but was that, in terms of gameplay, what you intended Sonic to be like on the Saturn? No. Um, with Sonic on the Saturn would have been much, you know, the pacing of Sonic, and uh, honestly, we'd have been pushing the Saturn a lot harder. Um, I think we might have even wanted to develop a 3D Sonic model, which it would have played out in real time, which would have been pretty challenging in the early days of the Saturn. Um, so it's really the pacing, the sense of humor, um, and the. it wasn't until after Bug was released that uh, it got described as a quad scroller instead of a side scroller. We had done okay. just a, a ton of side scrollers. Uh, yeah. The fact you could go in and out of the screen and what have you um, was, uh, I, I don't think it would have been as regimented with Sonic. I think we'd have seen a lot more curves and things like that. I think mm -hmm. Sonic would have still been on rails. And I was a big proponent of bug being on rails, even though it was a 3D game, I felt the need for the determination or the, the certainty of collision interactions. I didn't want to be messing with collision planes on three dimensions. Um, two is enough. Uh, and so so having them come in and out of the track, uh, you know, if you look at it, it's still a 2D game, but it's expressed in 3D. But all of the collisions, all the gameplays only takes place on in 2D at once. And that's what the market was used to. That's what people were uh, people were 
experiencing in, in other games. So I, I felt strongly that we needed to keep it that way. Excellent. Yeah, yeah. That that would be would have been interesting. So uh, we, we're going to take a quick break soon, but let me just, uh, so we don't lose our train of thought. Yeah. Um, you mentioned, uh, you know, you, you were pitching a game for the Genesis. Bug was originally a, a Genesis game. And then you were surprised as everyone else that the Saturn would be coming out soon. What were your thoughts at the time, knowing what the market was like? Um, did you think that was the right move to to move to the Saturn? Were you a fan of the the 32x and Mega CD or Sega CD combo? Do you think that was a mistake? <laughs> what were your thoughts living in those days in inside the the, the industry and having this relationship with Sega? No comment. Sega at that time was at one time they had eight or so platforms all either in development or trying to launch in the market and um, I I, I don't know whose idea that was but to have so many devices that tried to address so many segments of the market you know you walk onto a car lot and, and no matter how much money you have to spend they've got a model of car for you and you keep upping that and then you get to the price point of the next model up, but with no features. And so that's some sort of car lot mentality, which was impossible to sustain given the size of the, of the video game market and the amount of manufacturing and inventory they needed to do. They had way too many platforms. I mean, the 32X um, I'd heard was devised because they had bought too many of a certain type of processor and they just needed to get rid of them. Um, or they had a a, a, um, a, a contract with uh, Hitachi, is the SH one. Um, and so, so those were some difficult platforms to really fully take advantage of. Um, and uh, we never developed for the 32x. Uh, we never developed for the Sega CD. Um, and and so there was really a, a around that time. I'm not sure of the exact timing of it, but yeah, they had way too many platforms. Uh, and I think that was part of what made it difficult for them to support the Saturn, um, the way that might have helped them hold up against uh, the PlayStation. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. There was one one famous day that I'll always remember in my studio when we had access to the Saturn way before the PlayStation came out. And uh, once we got our first PlayStation development kit, we took a, we are cross-platform programmers. We like to do games on multiple platforms. We did a very simple sprite test of, all right, let's just have bouncing balls on the screen and let's see how many we can run at 60 frames a second. And the Saturn got up to 800. And as soon as we got to 810 or 820, it chugged down to 30 frames a second. And then we did the same test on the PlayStation and it was like 2,400 uh, before it started chugging. To, and then we were like, holy cow, this, <laughs> this is, that's, that's, but A, how do we develop to maximize both platforms? But B, um, we've got the relationship with Sega and the inside track and all this. And with Sony, that's a, either a new platform, new relationship for us. So we, we realized we were, we were in with the underdog uh, as far as the technology went. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, and then as you look at games being developed for the PlayStation, um, they were able to take advantage of that in ways that was not possible on the Saturn, um, mm -hmm. even using both processors at the same time. 
Yeah, yeah. So uh, people people usually say that the, the Saturn, the approach to to the Saturn was not the best. Uh, people were all about the 3D at the time, and the Saturn was not the best for 3D games, right? So the 2D is where uh, the platform shines. Yeah, but... and then again, going back to the limitations of of technology, how do you make the most out of uh, limited technology? And Bug, I think it's just pretty uh, widely known now, though we developed all of the characters in 3D modeling software, we took um, still pictures of them and ran them as animated sprites in 3D space. Um, uh, so because uh, it would have been too much CPU power to try to drive all of those 3D models in in the uh, even with with both uh, both processors. And another thing I like to say about uh, Bug uh, is that um, you know the the Saturn had two SH1 or SH2 processors. SH1. Uh, it had two processors, but you needed to figure out how to get them to operate without stepping on one another. Mm-hmm. And because we were so focused on the fun, the gameplay factor, you know, how can we make this thing great? Um, the first thing the first processor did was turn off the second processor, and then we ran <laughs> the whole game on the first processor, which <laughs> which worked just fine because we weren't trying to do that 3D rendering. I mean, the backgrounds mm-hmm. were all 3D rendered. Those were those, but that's where we chose to put the the power of the of the uh, graphics chips and all that. Mm. Excellent. That's amazing. Thank you. Thank you for sharing, David. That's very interesting. A very interesting insight. Uh, a fun fact for you. So I'm from Portugal, and in Portugal, the Saturn for uh, a couple of years, perhaps, was much, much bigger than uh, the PlayStation, mm. which I think is uh, not the same that happened all around the world. But it, because it, it had a Sega had a, such a big presence during the the six and bit days. Mm-hmm. Um, Nintendo was nowhere to be seen almost. So it was all Sega and people were re- really big fans of the company and they, you know, everyone was on board with the Saturn. Even though mm-hmm. later the Saturn stopped, you know, we stopped getting new games. So, uh, but I, I think that's part of why, um, for example, Bug, Bug 2 uh, and other certain games are such beloved uh, parts of video game history here in Portugal and for some of our listeners as well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I understand Europe was a completely different thing than America. And we would do PAL versions of the games, but the, basically the, because it's 50 hertz rather than 60 hertz, they kind of suffered by being a little slower. Yeah. Or if you increase the gameplay speed, um, there were technical problems where objects could move through uh, boundaries where they where they had been tested not to. So it was a, mm-hmm. um, a difficult to master, but uh, yeah, and appreciate that the people in Europe uh, rode the the Genesis, uh, the uh, the Saturn, and the Sega wave. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, I I remember when I first heard uh, and first played, but heard the 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 soundtrack to Sonic games in sixty hertz. Uh, it blew my mind because <laughs> it was much much slower. <laughs> but yeah, oh. and, and fun that, that does remind me of the music for Bug which I absolutely adore. Um, I had been trying to do music and sounds for my own games as I was producing them in my company, but as it grew, the, there just wasn't enough uh, time to, to do the job I wanted to do. Brought in a, a composer who had done film and television scoring, and it was like, 
dude, you want to work on three square waves in a four octave range? What, what's going on? Said, no, no, no. I want to do this. Greg Turner. Um, and what a brilliant composer. And he was able to take the limitations of these machines. But when we first had a concept, okay, what do we want? What do we want um, uh, but the soundtrack for Bug to sound like? Um, uh, we came up with Pink Panther on Speed. And and then he went into his, his composing studio for, I don't know, a day or two. And he came back and he played me the rush of how he thought this game should sound. And I was floored. I loved, absolutely loved it. Now, um, the soundtrack was slightly altered in the game as it was released. But if you can find the Sega CD, I forget what it's called. There's a, a audio CD released that Sega released um, that has music from all of the games of that era, the uh, Saturn mm -hmm. games, especially there's a piece. The last one on the album is called bug bop. And yep. that is the, is the tune that Greg wrote uh, to pitch for the, the, the sound. And man, I mean, I, I still get chills down my, my spine as he's, as he's doing all these little uh, xylophone runs and the comedic stuff. It's just, uh, I love that soundtrack. So let's take a quick break, uh, so we can we can clear our throats, <laughs> uh, and we'll be right back with more with David Warhol. Our 60-second game segment is back, and for the first time, with a one-minute pitch by one of our listeners. In fact, you may hear me mentioning him throughout this show since it was a chat with the amazing João Perdal that inspired me to track down David Warhol. João is also getting the Sega Lounge prize for sending me his 60-second game. Remember, you can also take part by sending me a good quality recording of your 60-second pitch of a Sega game you love. Recordings that I play on the show will get a TSL prize. Anyway, here is João Perdal with his game. Hi, my name is João Perdal and I am here to talk about Bug 2. Bug 2, with an exclamation point at the end, is the sequel of the 1995 Sega Saturn game simply titled Bug also with an exclamation point at the end. In this game, you can control one of three zany characters, Bug, Maggot Dog or Superfly. You will travel through six different worlds and each one of them is inspired by famous movies. Instead of their real names, each world has his very own humorous pun, like Weevil Dead 
or Fleewee's Big Adventure. Bug 2 is played like a traditional side-scroller platformer, but it has some 3D elements. It's also filled with secret areas, ready to be discovered by the player. To sum it up, Bug 2 is a very unique Sega game, with a very distinctive personality. Believe me, it's totally worth it. Welcome back, David. Welcome back to the Sega Lounge. Hope you're well and ready. Yep, yep. Having fun. You're saying yep, yep, and, and saying having fun, but you don't know what's coming up. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so here's the thing. Um, there's a tradition here on the Sega Lounge. When I have guests, which is every week, basically, I always like to play a little game with them. It's a game, but it's actually called the Sega Lounge Challenge. Now that you know our guests, it's time to put them to the test. It's the moment we've waited for, and the moment they dread. Welcome to your doom. I mean, welcome to the Sega Lounge Challenge. <laughs> what is the Sega Lounge Challenge? Uh, I, I wish listeners could look at your face right now. <laughs> See your face and... Yeah, the fear. Uh, so the Sega Lounge Challenge could be pretty much anything I want. But this time, I thought you are a video game industry legend. Um, you you worked on, on games and your company worked on games for various Sega systems. So how well do you know um, games for Sega systems? Doesn't have to be your games, but... Can you identify from just a, a basic, quick uh, description of the game? Can you identify the game, even okay. if one of yours or not? <laughs> <But> so, <laughs> yeah, as a disclaimer, I'm so focused on our own stuff. Yeah, I might not have been playing everything else that came out of the studio, but okay. We'll see. We'll, we'll see. see. Okay. So I have a few here. Uh, if you need me to, I will give you some options. Okay. If not, if you can just give me the answer. And I think you will. This, this, these are pretty easy. Let's start with something like this. Ready? Something simple. Ready? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> in this Genesis platformer from 1995, you could play as Ikis, Crum, and Oblina. I think I'm pronouncing the names correctly. Um, I can give you options if okay. you uh, yeah, if you really need them. Yeah. Um, was it was it exclusive to the Sega platform, or was it available on other? Uh, that that's a good question, and I will check really quickly. I don't think it was actually. I could be wrong. It was okay. Apparently, okay. It was. yeah. Um, all right. Well, then I'm ready for if you've got a multiple choice thing here. Maybe okay. I can pull it out of that. So, pay attention. <gasps> the suspense. Option A. And I have to say it like it's written. So, ah! Real Monsters. That's how you read the name of that game. Option B. <laughs> Tiny Toon Adventures. Option C. The Lost Vikings. Okay. Well, my guess was going to be The Lost Vikings, but now I know it's Real Monsters. 
<laughs> Real monsters. Exactly. Thank you. Thank you. That's exactly it. Very good. One point. Good job. That is indeed the correct answer. So one of yours. One of yours here. Yeah. Okay. Let's go with another one. Let's go with this. Released in 1992 in the US and published by Mindscape. This Game Gear game lets you select one of four playable characters, including Vision and Hawkeye. It's Captain America, right? Or the Avengers, the Avengers. Yes? Uh, so is no? it Captain America? Is no, it's, it's, the, it's Avengers? the Avengers. It's got to be the Avengers. Uh, Captain America and the Avengers? I, I, <laughs> <laughs> so what's, right. your final, what's your final answer? <laughs> well, I do know that Real-Time Associates did a port of the arcade version of uh, if it was called Captain America and the Avengers, um, and brought it over for Mindscape. So I'm, I'm, but but the exact title I I couldn't tell you. Um, I, I would I would go with that. If I were you. <laughs> okay. Yeah. All right. So um, so yeah, <laughs> Captain America and the Avengers. Okay, good very job. good. That's um, it. <laughs> and, and it's fun to tell people that. Oh yeah, I worked on an Avengers game. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> and, Especially and awesome. now, right? We did it. Yeah, we did an Iron Man game too, you know. So, okay. <laughs> or, uh, uh, just uh, an Iron Man game? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Iron uh, Man and XO on the Saturn. Uh, it oh, was a Saturn I didn't know that one. Okay. okay. Yeah. This okay. Was, uh, I think by then we were actually rendering the characters in 3D. Not sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but the rooms, at least the background and all that, it was a crossover between two comic book licenses. It might have been Dark Horse had this character called Man of War. Mm-hmm. And uh, Marvel with uh, X Men, so they might have released some comics where the two characters were in the same thing. We did a game of course for a claim, um, and that was one on the Saturn and the PlayStation. But it was the one where I think the the producer at the time, Dave Bean, um, was really frustrated because we couldn't take advantage of everything on the that the PlayStation had to offer because we needed it also to work on the Saturn. We had you know, mm. we're working with those kinds of problems. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But so we, we had, we have a right answer and a little more information. That's awesome. Okay. Okay. I have another one. Okay. <laughs> Released in 1993 in the U S this Mega Drive game features stages such as The Forest, Music Town, and The Farm. Mega Drive? Uh, so, so Mega Drive Genesis, right? Oh, yeah. oh, oh. Okay, I apologize okay. for, yeah, I'm from Europe, so. So this uh, is a all right, Genesis I'm going to say Berenstain Bears. Okay. Would you like to, to hear the, the options? Yes, yes. I'll, I'll hear the options okay. now that I've got it wrong. Okay. <laughs> so the options are Barney's Hide and Seek Game. Oh. B, McDonald's Treasure Land Adventure. C, Mickey's Ultimate Challenge. Uh, all right, Barney. I'm going with Barney. Barney for 500, please, Alex. <laughs> it is Barney. Okay. <laughs> so yeah, good job, good job. Okay, let's let's switch this up a bit. So we've been doing uh, RTA games, 
let's do something else. Let's do something else. So uh, what I'm going to tell you here, what I'm going to use as clues now are games on the on the Genesis. Okay? Okay. So let's see if we can... Th this is a classic question here on, on this show. In this 1992 game, the Earth is being invaded by an alien foe, and it's up to this hero to save his pod and the planet. Echo the Elephant. I believe you're the first person ever in like seven years of this show to give me a straight answer, and it's the correct one as well. Uh, well done. <laughs> it is Echo the Dolphin. I don't think people uh, hear the part about the pod, which could help, but yeah, yeah. An uh, alien yeah. invasion. Yeah. You don't think about dolphins, right? The, the, yeah, the pod, the pod was the giveaway there. And Ed Enunziata is a great storyteller, and all of his games, just brilliant. Brilliant stories. True, true. Okay, very good job. Very good. Let's go with a different one now. Okay. Let's go back to, to the other questions I had here. What's the title of the 1994 Genesis game starring a beach bum who discovered... <laughs> All right, I need no more, no more, and no more, uh, not a single other clue. Normie's Beach Baby Rama. <laughs> That's correct. <laughs> he discovers a UFO stealing the girls on the beach and sending them to random times in the history of Earth. Of Ooh. course, as, as per usual, speaking of alien invasions, yeah, that's <laughs> usually what happens. <laughs> awesome, awesome. Okay, one more? One more? Please, yeah, yeah. Okay. This platformer, based on an IP by Lucasfilm, was originally released for the Super NES in 1994 and then ported a year later to other systems, including the Game Gear. Platformer? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I don't know Lucasfilm games, LucasArts being platformer guys. I mean, I mean, if it was an adventure game, adventure. I'd say Maniac Mansion. Yeah, Adventure, uh, Maniac Mansion. Um, but um, can you read that one more time? So uh, the platformer based on an IP by Lucasfilm was originally released for the Super NES in 1994 and then ported a year later to other systems, including the Game Gear. All right. What are my three options? So, uh, okay. <laughs> Option A, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Option B, Super Star Wars Return of the Jedi. Option C, Back to the Future 3. Okay. Well, um, gonna say, well, it's gonna be, it's either A or B, um, but I'm gonna say uh, Star Wars. Why? Uh, well, we did do a Game Gear version of Star Wars, uh, one of the, one of their, uh, um, movies, um, but that's the uh, that's the only thing. And I don't remember Indiana Jones being in a platformer, but I suppose it was. I, I didn't say that, but but yeah. I, <laughs> I'm just th these are just options. Okay. Uh, your 
answer is correct. Yeah. <laughs> Super Star Wars Return of the Jedi, yes. Yeah. <laughs> On the Game Gear developed by RTA. Yeah, well, I can I can do remarkably well when you give me the answers. So, so that's... Uh, <laughs> uh, okay, last yeah. one. Last mm-hmm. one. We're going uh, to get a trip down memory lane to the Saturn days. Okay. And this one is... In this game, you play as an insect trying to make it big in Hollywood. I wonder what it is. Uh, let's see here. I've got, I actually have the poster on my wall of the release. There's a big, couple of big googly eyes, red shoes, white gloves. Could it be Bud? Mm-hmm. I don't know. You tell me. <laughs> <laughs> Could be. Could be. All right. <laughs> That's correct. Yes, of course. Bug. Well done. Good job. Good job. Hey, you did this great. Who wants to be a millionaire? I, I'd, I'd be up at about the $25,000 level at this point. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Maybe next time we'll do one for real money. Uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll start a Kickstarter for that. <laughs> next time it's on the, on the show. Please give us all the money so we can give it to him. <laughs> Very good job. Thank you. Thank you for playing. Thank you for playing. So let's let's just go back a little bit to what we were talking about uh, before. So by the way, I I skipped the the Saturn. I it's been told many times on this show. I skipped the Saturn and PlayStation generation altogether um, because of of money and other issues at the time. But uh, I actually had Bug Two. I, I've played Bug uh, a few years later, but at that time I had Bug Two on my PC, so it mm. was released on, for the mm. Sega PC. Bug and Bug Two were both released for the Sega PC, so I, I have a, a very soft spot for Bug Two. Um, but I know both of the, of the games have a lot of puns, which is something that I very much enjoy. Have a, a, a great sense of humor. Um, what was the the idea behind? bug and the characters and how did you come up with that how did you guys come up with that and okay what was your yeah. what, what do you, who do you think this would appeal to firstly well um uh, there was uh i had two producers at the time Anne Lodayev and david bean and we were having dinner one night and it was Anne Lodayev who you know when we were just knocking around what kind of characters a penguin who's done a penguin how about a armadillo no that's right, right, right. And it was Anne who said, I know, bug. And then it just was like, oh, yeah, that makes so much sense. So I, I got to credit Anne with, with introducing that into the conversation. Um, and then uh, we gave that over to Jeff Cook, our art director. And Jeff, um, at first, I don't know if you guys remember the uh, Bloom County cartoon character, Bill the Cat, this totally mangy cat that was anti-Garfield. It was just one big bulging eye, one day, you know, tongue hanging out to the floor, just this, this outrageously uh, insipid cat. So our first concepts for uh, Bug were to go with that kind of build a cat kind of thing. He was from the wrong side of the tracks or wrong side of the garden kind of thing, just this, you know, mangy, mangy bug. And we had done a couple of iterations for Jesse uh, Taylor at the time. And he was like, nah, this isn't in the mark. Nah, this isn't good. Nah, this isn't Disney enough. So Jeff finally uh, really cleaned up the character. And if if this hasn't been brought out before, 
Um, if you take a look at like big red shoes, Mickey Mouse, white gloves on the hands, Mickey Mouse, two big googly eyes. Well, Mickey Mouse has two big googly ears. The, the idea was to cast it in something that somebody would feel immediately familiar with. Wow. Uh, you know, I get it. Uh, I, I can identify with this character because we have for 100 years now. Um, so Bug was different enough, uh, but still familiar enough. So that's where that's where the, the graphic look uh, came from. And yeah, Jeff was a, a brilliant artist on that. And uh, incidentally, he did a character study of Bug where he did eight or nine expressions to kind of a little character Bible where uh, he was confused and he was angry and he was uh, devilishly, um, you know, just all of these expressions. And as I was looking at it, I was saying, this is great, but Jeff, I've seen you make all of those expressions, you know, all of these <laughs> Uh, Jeff was a very expressive guy, but when he when he looked confused, he would put on this really totally confused face, and and there it was on Bug as well. So he was probably very autobiographical in the, <laughs> the emotional range that Bug has was uh, was all Jeff. Um, and I wouldn't say the story of Bug for me, I was never really a big story guy. I just wanted the story to be three words: he just is. You know, I, I played Mario not caring about the, you know, oh, you're rescuing the princess. Uh, we are just, it's all about the gameplay and the relationship between the objects and the player. And and so uh, that's what my focus was. But everybody else in the project, especially Steve Apoor, producer of Sega, wanted a story beyond that. So the story came from Steve um, and then, and then, um, uh, then we were dressing all of that up. I got to say, all the the humor, uh, the character humor, and the puns was all Jeff Cook. He was the uh, character designer. When we were like, okay, well, let's do this level, he would come up with eight or nine sketches of of whatever uh, kind of bugs. Um, uh, incidentally, one of the biggest uh, Saturn honors that I can even remember is that you know B fifty two is one of the characters in in um, Bug, and somebody sent us a picture of street art in New York where somebody had done a mural of B-52, you know, eight feet by eight feet kind of thing. And wow, for it to be made into culture or a pop culture like that, we were really, really tickled. And, That's, and amazing. <laughs> so, That's amazing. That's yeah. amazing. I, I, not to, to, to cut your, your reasoning there, but I remember, uh, and I still to this day do this. So I love the BHX uh, joke at the beginning of, I, yeah. I think both games, but at least Bug 2. So BHX, the bugs are listening. So every time I go see a movie and it's THX, <laughs> I always whisper to my wife, the bugs are listening. And she doesn't get it. She doesn't get it. But it, to this day, yeah. it's still something that uh, when I, when I, because I, I, at the time I didn't get the joke. Later, oh, oh, oh wait, wait, th. Oh, I get this now. And so ever since that happened, every time she's like, "I don't get it." Yeah. Bhx, the bugs are listening. Yeah. Sorry, please do keep going. <laughs> oh, well, that's that's pretty much it. The the, the yeah. team with a variety of characters, all from uh, Jeff Cook, um, and um, uh, yeah, the the and then let's see, we had um, yeah, I, um, a couple of uh, uh, 
couple of celebrities who were vo- voicing uh, the characters for us uh, at the time. I, I, I want to say, um, yeah, yeah, I, 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 names escape me and I don't want to quote the wrong guy. Uh, John Frost. Yes. As Bug. Uh-huh. Perry Kiefer. Okay. Tim he Jones. one of our artists as well. Tim Jones, one of our artists. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Those are the only ones I have here. Okay. In this All right. Credits list. Okay. There, there may be another one, but uh, I'd have to. Uh, I'll, I'll follow and, up and, on that. Uncredited, perhaps. Uncredited, okay. but uh, okay. nationally recognized uh, radio personality guy who started in radio. Okay. Okay. Excellent. Well, let's see if your listeners can come up with it. Let's. Uh, we'll. We'll. We'll put that out there. Well, yes. <laughs> Which Comedy Central star? <laughs> okay. <laughs> You're giving more and more clues. Okay. <laughs> Excellent. So um, that, that that's awesome, David. All that you guys have done is is really, really amazing. I want to bring it back to the, the present a little bit more now. Um, so what have you guys been working on? What have you been working on? What do you find interesting in this industry today, for example? Mm-hmm. Mm, yeah, well, that's a that's a skip of about 20 years. Um, there was a transition, a very difficult transition real-time associates went through um, because we were uh, sidled up to Sega. Once the it was obvious they were losing the console wars, uh, there was a time when two-thirds of the work in our studio was canceled within a 30-day window. I had 100 employees, and all of a sudden, 70 of them were unemployed, uh, which started a kind of a precipitation. We... Uh, unfortunately, let go of some of the lower performing staff, which made the higher performing staff get nervous and leave. So we really were stuck with a core crew of very dedicated people. Um, but um, because we'd also been known to do a lot of children's games, weren't getting opportunities on the new consoles as they came out because they were very core games, very uh, mm-hmm. driven and all that. So I'd say that, um, you know, we're doing casual games as as we could um, and then, or, or family-friendly games, which wasn't really the driving genre to get you on the beginning of a platform. Then after a couple of years, they'd say, yeah, well, you haven't done anything on the PlayStation 2, so wh- where are we going to go with that? So we kind of rode with our passion of the kinds of products we wanted to do rather than what the market opportunity were, but uh, in doing so, uh, gravitated away from these mainstream releases with the 200-person teams the, and, and all that now. Um, so we've been doing a lot of... Um, uh, uh, prototyping and uh, games for you know games for health. It's a way for us to bring game technology to um, different markets or to make a difference in the world. Um, but uh, even skipping uh, much more recently, uh, for the last five maybe five six years, I've been working on a location based um, entertainment format. So what's interesting to me is taking new technologies and bringing them together using interactivity um, and entertainment uh, to come up with uh, products that have never been done before. So even if you look back at Bug, okay, nobody had done a quad scroller at that time. Let's hear some new technology. Let's figure out something we can do with that. Uh, So I I still feel that what we're looking at now is um, taking... Uh, new technologies that aren't necessarily even gaming platforms and making entertainment experiences out of them. Um, So um, we had pioneered a um, location-based kind of a virtual reality um, uh, entertainment system without the VR headsets. 
where people could see each other in a uh, theater, a small theater, maybe 30 feet across, 20 feet across, see each other and yet be immersed in interactive 3D graphics. So I've been pursuing that very um, deliberately for about five years uh, pre-COVID, but then getting groups of strangers together indoors and asking them to interact with each other close quarters. didn't yeah. really, um, you know, it's, uh, that's been shelved for the time being. Um, uh, t- uh, again, with, with taking interactivity, technology, visualizations, uh, and all that, more recently, in the last couple of years, we're working in what I would call holographic telepresence, which, well, you know, what, the, what, the, what is that? Well, it's the Princess Leia moment in Star Wars, um, uh, recreating characters in 3D using traditionally 2D devices or capture devices, and mm-hmm. um, um, so so um, the 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 kinds of things we're working on is still interactive, uh, can be entertainment, can be utilitarian, uh, but basically uh, for the last year or two, specializing in forward-looking technologies, uh, things like recreating 3D characters out of 2D imagery. Uh, facial reconstruction, automatic lip sync. Um, so what we're what we're doing is looking at what technologies are being expressed in the future and bringing them into uh, products and entertainment experiences now, but more as custom uh, products. There's nothing really consumer level yeah. in any mm-hmm. of this now, uh, but it still kind of feeds that feeds that desire of well, what hasn't anybody done yet? Well, let's do it. Yeah. And and if you make it happen, it could be explored yeah. for a consumer market as well. Yeah, in the future, yeah, that yes, makes sense. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Have you been, uh, you know, taking a a look at what's out there in terms of video games and the the that part of entertainment, or have you been a little bit up, you know, apart from that since you're working on other things? Well. Um... Um, I, I, as a, as a consumer, I still enjoy video games, but I find that the time they take to really explore exceeds my ability to immerse myself in them. Um, so, um, big fan of, say, for example, uh, No Man's Sky. Um, all right. It's, uh, I, I, I've, I've got it and, um, love to play it. It gets a computer game more than a console. I get that, but, um. But the you know to really explore that would just take eons, and as much as I appreciate it, um, that uh, uh, as far as the um, as far as the consoles uh, out there now, um, I'll take a look at the big games that come out, the big franchises. But again, I either I don't have the dexterity or the patience to be able to work my way through a sixty-hour campaign. Um, and I'm such an amateur at online campaigns that I uh, wouldn't try to get into a Call of Duty or anything. Anyway, it's those types of games don't really interest me. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, a, a shout out to Untitled Goose Game. You know, this is it hits my sweet spot. It's hilarious, simple to play, not you know, not epic. Um, <laughs> uh, um, it, it is. Or, you know, it is yeah. in its own right. It's epic in its own right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. In a different <laughs> way. In a different vein. Uh, yeah. Journey. I've probably played five times through because it's just so um, it's evocative, and the music is great, and it's also a very short play. So uh, yeah, yeah. Um, and even the, it has that that cooperative play if you yeah. wanted to. If yeah. if you somehow find other players. It's it's something really really special. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, w- would you see yourself 
coming back to the um, to the video game industry, so to speak. So, would you see yourself working on uh, a game these days if it was something uh, different? Or what, which genre well, would you like it's, to work um, on? You know, I, I'd want to say that uh, the experiences I've had in the last 10 or 15 years are, are um, what, what I see happening in the indie genre. I mean, the design uh, ethos expressed in independent games now, uh, small teams, medium-sized teams, um, uh, that, that, you know, I'll leave it. I, I might have an idea that I could express that way, but I don't have the either the the team or the command over. Uh, let's let's make something that's happened. So I think what the indies are doing is great, and I don't think I could either compete or um, you know try to try to handle that market because it still requires promotion and marketing. Um, and then if if I were to look at um, maybe collaborating with an indie team of the the production or the man the prioritization of assets and and where do we throw the you know if, if anything uh, I feel that I might still be qualified in that role um, but then there's there's uh, teams now doing retro games like um, mm -hmm. uh, Tommy Tallarico's Rebirth of the Intellivision Amico um, and and I look at that and I still well that's still too new school for my old school stuff so. I almost feel like if I were going to do an original game, I would do an 8K game or 4K game as they were originally programmed because nobody can do that. <laughs> or nobody would want to have the patience to do that. So um, uh, I want to keep a hand in entertainment. Of course, music slash um, interactive products, a big fascination for me. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I, I uh, may have a... a a way to express myself as far as music gameplay goes um, in, in ways that we haven't seen yet. So if so, it would still then be in some sort of um, something that hasn't been expressed yet or a way to express it in a, in a new way. So I appreciate asking, but uh, I don't see myself in a return to consumer entertainment software, uh, but um but certainly that the passion for this location-based technology that, that we've mm -hmm. uh, pioneered and then uh, music interactivity, there, there may be stuff there, but gosh, getting through the noise, uh, you know, there's just so much, that's um, true. so much stuff out there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You're, you're a trailblazer. So you're <laughs> probably, you're probably just coming up with the technology and uses for technology that we'll use uh, for <laughs> playing video games in the years to come. So. <laughs> well, that would be fun. We did we did a lot of our own engines before there were game engines out there. We we um, we did that, and I I did license my audio drivers to a number of people who were like, I don't know how to make music on this system. Oh, here, use this. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. Excellent. Yeah. Awesome. Um, let's say you were approached by by Sega or by by whoever is doing wanting to do that with a proposition to. You know, bring back one of your old IPs. Would oh, well, you? Yeah. Would you be up to to letting it go and and letting go of it and saying, okay, here it is. You have the rights. Just you know, um, do something. Let me see what it is. Let me give my okay, and you can knock yourself out. 
Well, oddly enough, we don't have a control. We, most of the games we've done are licensed, so we don't have the uh, rights to the characters. Okay. And, and this weird thing happened, getting back to Bug and how it was supposed to be a Sonic game. The contract read they owned the character in the IP. And then when we switched it over to Bug, it wasn't until a few months later that I said, oh, wait a second. Yeah, it's an original game with us. We've done all this character design work, but we don't own the characters because of this accident in the contract. Uh, and when I brought it up to Sega's management at the time, they said, well, pretty much tough. Yeah, you know, no, you can't have yeah. IP. We've got it. We need it. It's valuable. It's it's ours. Um, ha ha. And uh, but but as I kept exploring and pushing, they said, well, honestly, if you came to us with an original game character that we didn't own on the Saturn, we probably would have turned you down. So, so on the one hand, it was a way for us to get our creative work out there. On the other hand, we don't control that particular IP as, as much as we, you know, we created it. But, yeah. um, but uh, if, if Sega uh, came back and said, hey, we want to get, a, you know, the bug team, let's get the crew back together, you know, or something like that. I'd have a blast with that. Absolutely. And, and there may be ways that we could express it uh, that haven't been, um, that haven't been done before, but. Um, so yeah, so we yeah. had a handful of IPs that that um, I, I'd be interested in in doing. I, incidentally, Mindstrike, that training product I did for Intellivision in the mid '80s, in the early '80s, yeah. I still have rights to that one. And okay, would, would, would do that too. Isn't it? Isn't it uh, coming back to, for the 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 Amico? Is it the Amico? Yeah, I don't think that'll be on the Amico. Um, no. The, okay. If it is, it'll be a port of the original game. Actually, I've seen some, I've seen some uh, cover artwork that I approved, um, but I my my feeling was it was a re-release of the original. Uh, mm. But if it is on the Amico, hey, um, no, I, I was just I was just asking. I, I, I I'm not I'm not in the know, so yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, um, what, what what do you think? So you 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 mentioned Bug. Where do you think? people could or you could make bug go in in 2021 or 2022 whatever what would you see you guys your your original team doing with the character and the the franchise wow wow there'd be so in much this day and age. yeah <laughs> um great question well i mean uh permission aside if we had uh, the ability to do that i think what we'd want to do is is uh, keep it a very Uh, kind of in the same vein of lighthearted, um, light action um, stuff. I might go with algorithmically generated content, kind of like your endless runners, where mm -hmm. you don't have to create um, what's called this content treadmill, um, uh, it, where where the game is only as good as as many assets as you can throw at it to come up with a Uh, a way that somebody could play it for 20, 30, 40, 50 hours without having 20, 30, 40, 50 hours of artists cranking out new sprites, new characters and, and all that. So um, that might be the, the, the way I either treat or pitch that. Um, mm -hmm. um, yeah. And, and actually I found the archive discs. I thought they were lost for 10 years. Uh, they're on some, format of a disc that doesn't even a disc drive that doesn't even exist anymore uh, <laughs> but i've i've got the original source code here now i just can't read it <laughs> okay <laughs> that's the next step then. yeah yeah 
<laughs> hold on to it. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Yeah, because uh, you know there there is a lot of interest um, for older IPs for you know retro gaming. It, it, there has been a, a renaissance of of retro games and retro IPs. I was thinking uh, as I was asking the question, I was thinking of Toe Jam and Earl. Mm. Right, oh, yeah. it's, which yeah, is a little bit older yeah. than Bug, but um, it it turns thirty this year, mm-hmm. and uh, they were able to get a Kickstarter going and and fund the, a new game a, a few years ago. Um, That's right. Yeah. Absolutely. Do you do you think do you think there would be still there would still be interest in in uh, Bug to an extent that maybe people would think- you know. Supported Toe Jam and- Earl might have made a, a bigger splash uh, than than Bug at the time. I'm not sure what the community would look like to support a uh, a Bug, a real time associate slash Bug. You know, if we got the old band together, like in the Blues Brothers, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Jeff Cook's <laughs> still out there. Uh, um, you know, uh, Greg Turner, composer, still out there. <laughs> Actually, worked with Tim Jones, one of the artists, just last year. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Um, it'd be possible that the, you know, I, I don't know if that it's, it's worth me reaching out to Sega and saying, Hey, mm-hmm. will you let me have fun with this? And I'll, I'll cut you in or whether or not they would be more restrictive to it. Um, it, it's again, would absolutely love to do that. But so much of making a game now is, uh, either the marketing or the, the, the getting the community going, and that's a component that we never had at Real-Time Associates and, and doesn't interest me personally. Uh, if, if, you know, maybe one of our team members was a, oh, we'll get the word out. Don't worry. Um, <laughs> that's what it would take because, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's my, my interest being in design and production. The creative and, process. Uh, yeah, the creative process rather than the creative mm-hmm. process with a community. Yeah. You know, so yeah. if a if a dedicated if a enthusiastic community manager uh, said, "Hey, I got this. Um, you do that," and and then there's the mm-hmm. the collaboration that way. Um, you know, there there'd be a conversation to have there, and that that'd be a lot of fun to explore what it would what it would take, and and you know what kind of audience mm-hmm. we could see with that. Excellent. So, listeners, you know, <laughs> you know, <laughs> the ball's on your court. <laughs> Okay, so David, it was really a blast to have you on on the show. Uh, I, I don't want to keep you much longer, but there is one question that I always ask my guests every time. So, are you familiar with the concept of blast processing? Blast processing? No, yeah, so I mean not, it, not by that term, but yeah. So it was a, a term that Sega of America came up with to promote ah. the Genesis. Okay. okay. Then very yes, I, I believe yeah. I know what it is. And again, it was Jesse Taylor uh, who told me about this with Sonic, and he said the speed that Sonic runs is exactly as fast as the sixty-eight thousand can refresh the background as it's moving as it's as it's moving at its maximum speed. Um, so if that's what last programming is, or if not, that certainly yeah. was a yeah, so yeah. so the, the 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 marketing team came up with this to to compare um, the, the the Genesis with the the Super NES and the Nintendo consoles. Uh, so it was much faster. So mm-hmm. it, is it a real thing though? We we there are conflicting opinions. But the question is, is this: 
if there was indeed blast processing, if there was a real thing, and if you could add blast processing to anything in the world, what would it be and why? Mm. To make it more powerful, faster, better, I don't know. Anything yeah, in the world. I mean, geez. Um, uh, you know, if, I mean, if you're opening it up outside of even entertainment, <laughs> I, uh, maybe my, my uh, Bitcoin farming would go faster. I don't know. Uh, uh, the... Um, and and I, and I do think it's a real thing. I think that the, between the 68,000 and the access they had to the video chip, that they were able to move a lot more pixels a lot more quickly than they were on other consoles, just thinking about my own familiarity with the architecture. Uh, but it would be a software technique, uh, blast, blast mm -hmm. processing. Um, oh, geez. Uh, games are running fast enough for me. Um, so, so, yeah, I'm... I'm Let's blast process our way into electric vehicles faster than we, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And let's, let's try to make a, uh, find a way to make them make any kind of noise. So I, I don't get run yeah. over on the street as I yeah. al almost usually do when I find a, an electric car. Right. Sound yeah, car. exactly. Okay. So. That's it. that's a, that's a good uh, good answer. There's no wrong or right answer here. With blast processing, anything goes. David, anything you'd like to say to the fans of your games and to the people who you know, to the old school gamers like me that still yeah. remember Bug and all the things that you worked on in the past. Well, just that I'm really appreciative of the interest of that era, um, and it's it's um, I'm always excited when people want to look back and say um, what were things like back then, or yeah, we've got all of these assets now, but what was it like before? The the I'm really appreciative of the interest in that era, and then either how things were made or what the stories were, what the social climate was like in that in that era as well as what the technical climate was like so i'm just very appreciative that that people find uh, interest in that uh, there's there's one uh, there's one catchphrase i have uh, which is i'm part of the big bang of video ga game development and what do i mean by that i mean like the farther you go back in time the more likely you are to see me and but as the <laughs> universe just expands and expands and expands yeah but just keep going back and then, oh there's his name again oh there's <laughs> but uh, so I, I'm, I really am, uh, you know, thankful and appreciative of the interest of this era. And um, and yeah, and it'd, it'd be fun to see how that gets expressed in either the indie game market or uh, people that do a lot of retro games, a lot of 16-bit uh, mm -hmm. retro inspired games. Um, love it. Keep, you know, keep it up, guys. Yeah. So uh, I'm I'm sure we'll we'll get to talk again soon when we get uh, Barney's Hide and Seek game HD on on the PS5 and Xbox. Please, uh, normies, let's do normies. normies. I, you know that's a that's a story in and of itself. But uh, uh, a, a couple of years ago, uh, I I did a I, I had a, a different show on Radio Sega, and I did a like a, an ad, a fake ad for um, like a campaign, like, I don't know, I'm not sure if you're familiar with Shenmue, a Dreamcast game that the mm -hmm. fans were able to bring back with the support of the community and they ended up getting a, a new game in the series. So I, I tried to fake start uh, a campaign for <laughs> getting a Barney's Hide and Seek Adventure or game HD. <laughs> so uh, like with a, a social media hashtag, 
Um, it wasn't very successful, but, <laughs> but uh, I'm sure we'll get there soon. And uh, Or maybe Bug 3. Mm, uh, yeah. al- although, how could you make a pun with Bug 3? I don't know. Uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll ask Jeff. <laughs> yes. And, and with all, just like Bug 2, all the references all right. to, to uh, different movies and stuff, that would be awesome. But yeah, so David, thank you very much for your time. Thank you for coming on the Sega Lounge. All the best for your future, current and future endeavors. All right. We'll talk soon. Yeah, thanks. It's <laughs> uh, been great talking with you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. that's it for my chat with David Warhol. Believe me, there was a lot more to talk about, but I hope you guys enjoyed all the stories he shared with us. It truly was an honor to have Mr. Warhol on the show. But now, it's time to say goodbye. We have a lot of great shows coming up as we wrap up Season 6 of this show in the next few weeks. Can you believe it's November already? Yeah. To stay up to date with all lounge happenings, remember to follow the podcast on your podcatcher of choice and follow us on social media. We're at The Sega Lounge on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Thank you so, so much for listening. I hope you have an amazing week and be sure to come back next week. Bye-bye. The Sega Lounge, hosted by me, KC, and part of Radio Sega's network of live shows and podcasts. Theme song and incidental music by OSC. Find them at opusciencecollective.bandcamp.com. Got any suggestions? Drop me an email to podcast at thesegalounge.com. Follow us on Twitter at thesegalounge and like us at facebook.com slash thesegalounge. You can find previous episodes of the show by going to thesegalounge.com and wherever fine podcasts are downloaded. A Mixed On Productions podcast.